You're listening to the 1208 Podcast from 1208 Greenwood Free Methodist Church in downtown Jackson, Michigan. Tonight's message theme goes full metal with Dragon Slayers! So, get ready to slay some dragons. I know, you're like, we're at Nerd Church all of a sudden, aren't we? By the way, Nerd Church, Monday nights, join us for that. But tonight, we're getting into a little bit of fantasy because John forces us to go that direction. He doesn't even necessarily say that this is a part of his vision uh, slash dream, anything like that. He doesn't use words like, and then I saw, or then I heard. So it's possible because John, of course, is having visions, but he's writing scripture to back them up. And sometimes he's using his own letters, things like that. It's possible that this isn't so much a vision as much as him trying to tell his own kind of fantasy legend story about Jesus, about uh, the supernatural world as it is. That's going to feed over into the next few weeks about this dragon that rises up and, and all of the dragon's empire that comes with him. So... Today we are going to uh, get into Revelation 12. I'm going to read it. we got three phases tonight. One, I'm going to read Revelation 12. Then I'm going to give you what I think is the interpretation and meaning behind it. And then we're going to talk about some practical steps. Why does this matter for you? Why are we talking about dragons and what am I supposed to go home and do about it? So let's dive in. Revelation 12. Here is John's fantasy story. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. There was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. Woe to you, because he knows that his time is short." 
And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Okay. A lot of weird stuff going on right there, uh, though if you were to read a bunch of ancient tales and like Greek mythology and other things, you might read this and be like, oh, John's kind of riffing off some of these other ones, kind of telling his own story. But if you're paying close attention to the themes that are being told, you're realizing like this isn't something that's going to happen down the road. Rather, it's something that's already happening right now and has already happened in the past. This is, believe it or not, another take on the Christmas story. <laughs> I mean, when you read it, you recognize some of the themes, right? There's this woman who's pregnant. She's about to give birth. And uh, in this, um, you start to think that this woman kind of in some ways sounds a lot like Mother Mary because she's giving birth to someone who's going to rule and uh, Christians are going to follow after him. So here's what you have to understand. A few things. And again, it's always hard to fully tell in some cases what Revelation is saying. But here's a few things that might be helpful. Number one, the first thing, you've got a Christmas constellation going on. It's astrology in a biblical form. They're looking at the stars. They're talking about what constellations mean and things like this. Now, it could just be a form of storytelling, but believe it or not, uh, there has been some interesting scholarly and scientific work trying to track down the stars and what they mean throughout history I'm not going to get deep into it because I tried once and even I didn't understand what I was saying. But uh, if you look at this constellation of a woman and this constellation of a dragon and you try to track out what's going on here, uh, some scholars have at least come to say, like, it's possible that these wise men who tracked down Jesus using the sky communicated to Mary and Mary to John about the way in which they were able to find Jesus, that they saw this story of these constellations coming together and Satan trying to, um, well, for them, they would have just been understanding we saw this woman, we saw this dragon, and so on and so forth. Part of the reason that that actually seems like it could be more metaphorically possible is, one, Paul says that uh, the universe has declared that Jesus is here. What is Paul talking about? Possibly Paul knew about some constellation of the universe declaring it. Um, but uh, if you do the math, the date it ends up being is September 11th, when Jesus would have been born. For us, that means something different, right? We think, of course, of the Twin Towers. But in their time, in 3 BC, that would have been the Jewish New Year. So it's possible Jesus is born on the New Year. God is doing a new thing, things like that. Either way, whether they're reading into that or not, the truth is when you look at this, you're already seeing a story of Satan trying to fight Mary and finish off Jesus. And the way in which he does that is through King Herod, right? The dragon wants to destroy Jesus, and he's waiting for Jesus to be born so that he can eat him right out of the womb. If you know the Christmas story, then you know that's pretty much the story of what Herod tries to do. 
John is saying this wasn't just Herod who was doing this. This was demonically inspired, satanically inspired. Satan who, oh man, we're about to get into it in the upcoming weeks. Satan who has his claws and fingers and strings all over the governmental authorities of his time and implied into our time today. Satan who has all of these things going on is uh, getting ready to destroy Jesus through the guise of Herod. We also see the Messiah. She, this woman gives birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And the Psalms, Psalm 2.9, is about the Messiah one day who will come, who will have a rod of iron. He will be the ruler. So this person who is given birth to, it's not like some future Jesus down the road. This is Jesus. Again, we're back to the Christmas story. We see the resurrection. What happens? This guy with the rod of iron who is now ruling the nations is caught up to God and to his throne. He ascends into heaven. That's the resurrection. And then we see an interesting term. You guys have actually come across this in previous passages. I just haven't zoomed in on it yet. 1,260 days. Sometimes it's stated as days. Other times it's stated as 42 months, which is the same amount of time. Other times it's stated as a time times and half a time, which is one times and then two times and then half a time. So that's three and a half. These are all um, Daniel gave a prophecy that there would be a amount of time that was time times and half a time. John loves that number. And so he uses it in all different kinds of terms. What does it mean, though? And I don't have a full answer to this, but here's what I am suspicious about as I read through the Bible. Seven is the ultimate number throughout all of Scripture. It's not a hundred. It's not ten. Seven. Seven is fullness. It's completeness. Sabbath is this day of rest. It's God's day. And seven is always pointing us towards this ultimate rest at the end of this phase of life where God will come and bring rest to the earth again, where he will be with us. Seven is the ultimate fulfillment of everything that you think from a biblical concept. John keeps using half of seven, three and a half. I think his implication is everything I'm trying to communicate to you right now, this wasn't a long time ago. This isn't the fullness down the road, but this is the middle of the road. Heaven's already here, but not yet. Heaven's already happening around us but not in full. And so I think when John keeps saying like there's this amount of time, these 42 months, these 1,260 days, this time times and half a time, I think he's saying like this is the now. And during this period, there are ways in which Satan will attack. And during this period, there are ways in which Christians will conquer. And John gives that to us, telling us this is right now. Three and a half. We're halfway there. He doesn't even mean we're halfway there, right? He just means like this is the in-between phase. We're not at the beginning. We're not at the end. And so even now, even though 1,260 days was a long time ago, I suggest to you by John's symbolism, he's saying we're still in this 1,260 days. There's also a new exodus. How does the woman escape the dragon? She escapes on wings of eagles. God told uh, Moses back when they were in Egypt, he said, I bore you on eagle's wings. So this is a new exodus. It's a new Passover in which those who have the blood of Jesus covering their lives will be safe from all of this, uh, the day of the Lord that will come with its, its vengeance. You also see a chaos creature. Satan shows up like a dragon. 
And this dragon has seven heads. And seven, again, fullness. So you could be thinking like the fullness of evil is here. But there's another creature in the Bible who had seven heads who happened to be a dragon. His name was Leviathan. And he was associated with the water. And the reason he's associated with the water is because water is chaos. Chaos was already present before Genesis started. Did you ever notice that? God hovered across the face of the waters. Of course, God made everything, so he made water. But from the biblical concept, there was only water. And then God comes in and brings order out of chaos. He brings land out of chaos. So land is his order. But chaos, the sea, and all the creatures that might be in it, this is all something uh, that can go back to chaos before God started to bring about order. That's why Revelation says at the end there's no more sea. We'll get to that down the road. But the sea is done away with. Chaos is done away with. There is only God's order left. And in this story, you have a seven-headed dragon, which is exactly what Leviathan was in the Bible, come and begin to shoot out a bunch of water out of his mouth. For us, it's a little easier to think Pokemon, right? So Satan was a uh, water type, apparently. Uh, But he comes out of the ocean, and then he begins to... Well, technically, he fell out of the sky in this case. But he begins to pour water out of his mouth and tries to kill Mary, tries to end Mary's life now that Jesus is gone, Uh, now that Jesus has resurrected and ascended into heaven. He tries to sweep her away. But what comes to Mary's rescue? The earth. God's order. The earth is on God's side. (laughs) And in this case, it just begins to open up and swallow all the chaos it tries to attack. Okay, in this story, almost done with all the interpretation stuff. But you also have Satan's fall, right? He's a great dragon thrown down. Uh, And he has all bad names attributed to him. Yes, he's a dragon, but he's also that ancient serpent. In other words, he's in the garden. He's the one that led us all into sin in the first place. He's also the devil. He's also Satan. He's also the deceiver of the whole world. Anything that is bad is pinpointed on this guy. It's kind of like the rebellious uh, mark of everything that's wrong and everything can be associated with. But even he will be defeated. Michael and his angels rise up to fight Satan. And they kick him out of heaven, which is a tale John's referring to all throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, there's a story about a angel who um, was one of God's like chief angels. And then he sinned and God kicked him out of heaven from the highest of heights to the lowest of lows. In the New Testament, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. He's bringing up that same prophetic word. And Satan is defeated. How? by Michael and his angels fighting against him. But here's what perhaps is most surprising to me. How is Satan defeated? It's by the martyrs. And this theme has come up pretty much every week that we've been in Revelation. Those who are willing to say Jesus is worth everything. He's worth so much that if someone threatened my life, I would be willing to turn my life over and die because that's what he did for me. That was the two witnesses last week, right? Two witnesses are representative of the entire church. No one would repent when God poured out plagues over and over again. The point was to get them to repent, but no one would repent. But finally, last week, we saw people repent. How did they repent? It was by the Christians willing to say, Jesus is worth it all and you can kill me. And as they die and are resurrected, 
suddenly the world wakes up and repents on a massive scale. They give glory to God. And so here John continues with the same theme. How was Satan kicked out of heaven? How was Satan overwhelmed? How was Satan destroyed? Not just because Michael is up there fighting, but because the Christians have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Satan is defeated by your suffering. Satan is defeated when you are willing to give it all for God, whether or not that's required of you in the end. That's a powerful message for them. They're thinking we're getting squashed out. We're getting killed. This is going to end the Christian movement. This is going to end what God's doing. And God communicates through John, no. When you put it all on the line, that expedites kingdom growth. It defeats Satan. It looks from our perspective like Satan's winning. When those around us die on God's behalf. But John's saying that's Satan's defeat. It's this whole backwards thing being told. But here's the thing. Because Satan is well alive and on the earth and fighting, whether it's through governmental authorities or just through his own fighting, as you see happen all throughout the Bible, especially throughout the Gospels as they're casting out demons and all these things. As you look at all that, what the Bible begins to, what John begins to tell us is that Satan is super mad He couldn't kill off Mary. He couldn't destroy the one who brought Jesus into existence or couldn't destroy Israel, if you will. They're kind of bringing Christianity into existence. And so he gives up on fighting Mary. And who does he go after? Christians. The dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Remember, this is apocalyptic, so it's symbolic. Jesus was Mary's offspring, yes, but the rest of her offspring is those following Jesus. As it says right there, who are those who are her offspring? It's those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And so here we are today, and we should expect to come across suffering because that's part of what it means to be a Christian. And that's what's so hard for me with the prosperity gospel It's because it's this idea that like you accept Jesus, life is all good and you're going to get lots of money and blessings and things will just be perfect. Whereas John's like, you've accepted Jesus. Satan's going to kill you. (laughs) He's going to try. He's certainly not happy about it. He's coming for you. That's the actual biblical story is like it's not about stuff. It's not about Jesus just pouring on you all the wealth and and goodness that you could ever hope for. That is coming. And in the end, will be given to everyone. Because it's not about treasures on earth. It's about storing up treasures in heaven. But in this time, Satan is still alive. And he's super ticked. And since he couldn't get rid of Mary. And he couldn't get rid of Jesus. He's coming for you. Now Jesus is more powerful than Satan. So good news. You got some good ability to fight on your behalf. But at the same time, you should expect suffering. And and this always takes me back to something that uh, one of my mentors told me once. Because I think I think I was talking about how like I'm trying to get more spiritually disciplined. I'm trying to work on some of these things and just like it gets harder. It's like, Damon, you're going to start praying more. 
And what happens? Things that would have never gotten in the way of prayer before suddenly start coming up and getting in the way of prayer. Life circumstances that I wouldn't have expected to happen start happening around me. It's like, it's like spiritual warfare just opens up or something. And, and their response was like, that's exactly when Satan's going to attack. <laughs> when you're trying to get better, when you're trying to grow, expect Satan to attack back. And that started to get me to think, you know, I'm not sure that Satan's too worried about apathetic Christianity. The fact that he seems to fight when I'm trying to grow makes me think that when I'm just stubborn and lazy and apathetic, he doesn't really care. I'm not much of a threat to his kingdom. I'm not proactive. And he's got other people to go suffer, (laughs) right? Extend troops in other directions. But when I'm suffering and I'm growing, that's all the more reason that he's like, I, I got to make this worse. I got to turn them around. I've got to make sure that they, they don't get any closer to God because that actually is a threat to his kingdom. So might I suggest that apathetic Christianity is not all that dangerous to Satan. Remember, John tells us that we conquered Satan by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony, for we love not our lives even unto death. Does that sound like American Christianity sometimes? Just putting it all on the line? Because when I think about the kind of first world spiritual problems that we run into, (laughs) it's about church hopping and church shopping and trying to find the place that is perhaps the most comfortable, which for a lot of people today is online. It's just easier to watch a church from a distance, not have to get involved in community, which is ironic because church literally is more than one person. That's that's like the definition. Church is a group of people. So when we're doing all that we can to like keep our distance from the rest of the church, that's that's the kind of way that we do Christianity I don't think that's very threatening to Satan. When we want to get our kids into extracurricular activities and sports and art and hobbies and all these kinds of things, like that's great. But when we start to like say like these things are more important than God or Jesus or church or you could sacrifice all these things because this, this is where it's at. This is what will give you your living. I suggest not so much. Jesus will give us our living. And those days have kind of like gone way behind us. I remember when I was a kid, my brother had a soccer game on youth group night. And like, it was a big deal. We're always at youth group. (laughs) Not because we're forced to be there. We just love youth group. And like, it became a big question for him. Am I going to go to my soccer game tonight? Because for him, that was like, what comes first? Soccer or God? And he made kind of a deal. He's like, you know what? Tonight I'm going to go do a soccer game. doesn't happen that's very often on a Wednesday night, so I'm just going to go do that. But other times I might have to turn this down. Those kind of conversations are way behind us. Anything that we try to apply ourselves to, if it gets in the way of church, it's often like, well, i got to choose this over that. And I know church is not the only form or place of Christianity, 
But this is just how things have changed so drastically over the last about two or three decades. To the point that things like youth groups and youth pastors are starting to become a little bit extinct. I was with a youth pastors meeting a few weeks ago and they're like, my kids are telling me they don't even know any Christians in their school. The world changes so drastically and we encourage it sometimes when we don't make it a priority in our own lives. We can look at church more than one night a week as overwhelming. And when you look at some of the things that Barna Statistics, can you read that? You're all good, right? <laughs> when Barna Statistics looks at like things that churches are, pastors are concerned about for their churches, and the top ones are reaching a younger audience, declining or inconsistent outreach and evangelism, declining or inconsistent volunteering, and declining attendance. And of course, they have more concerns than that. But those are the top ones, like people leaving churches in droves. And I know for myself, like, I got to go to so many meetings <laughs> to learn how to do church in different ways, to reach different people and do things in a different light for a new kind of world and things like that. And the reason that we have all that is because church does not hold its importance like it did. So Revelation convicts us here. These people who are like, I will put my life on the line for Jesus. And then Western Christianity is like, oh, I really kind of just want to sleep in today. I can do Jesus some other time. I uh, thought it might uh, be fun to kind of look through uh, ratings of churches in Jackson. <laughs> see, see why people might give lower ratings. I thought I'd share some of these with you. This is fun. One star. Kind of boring. Less blah, blah, blah. More sweet baby Jesus in the golden fleece robe. Awesome parking, though. I don't know if that's just a joke because I know they're referencing a Will Ferrell movie. But, nonetheless, that's <laughs> one star. One star. I wasn't welcome because of an ex-boyfriend. One star. Not a fan. One star. Never been here. <laughs> we'll talk about how reviews work some other time. Two stars. Stuffy church for old people. Two stars. People are friendly and helpful. I don't, I don't think they know how that works. Uh, this one's my favorite. Two stars. Don't post. Cancel the stars. Our errors. Church is great. <laughs> so, some older person had made a comment and didn't know how to fix it or edit it after. So it's stuck on two stars. Uh, three stars. Clean and helpful. Clean. The kind of things that are important for church. <laughs> Three stars. Christmas gift line totally disorganized, chaotic. Food very tasty. Large turnout of people for the food pantry items. Three stars. I only turned around in their parking lot. And then this one kind of feels like what we run into a lot of times. Three stars. Teaching is okay sometimes. Other times it's average. Telling people to stand for 25 minutes straight for the singing is unreasonable. Some of us have old folks with arthritis, sciatica, and other ailments. You can't stand for more than 10 minutes. Your greeters are nice. Your snacks are great. Your location is great. Four stars. One if the best fish fry if you can find during Lent. Great folks. Like these are just examples of some of the things that we look for. Most of those are Jackson Church Reviews. Some of them were Ipsy and maybe Kalamazoo. But almost all of those are Jackson. These are the things that we would, you know, at the beginning of Revelation, God's like, 
I'd rather you be hot or cold. This is my review of your church. Over here, you just need to follow me all the way to death. Trust me, it's good. Over here, you just follow through with me. Hold tight. You are where Satan's throne is. You can make it. And then we're like, ah, great parking. The parking was all right. Food was tasty. Line, though, completely disorganized. And they didn't like my ex-boyfriend. Like, these are... Examples of what Christianity looks like to us in the West. Revelation, put your life on the line. Western Christianity, where am I most comfortable? And that seems to be the theme. The megachurch movement kind of died a long time ago, but I'm still noticing it's where everybody goes. There's bigger churches where you can blend in and feel comfortable and not have to always talk to anyone. And uh, there's enough polish. There's enough money to put the polish around, keep things going. That's the kind of thing that we're most comfortable with and chase after. I've been to churches where everyone is like the most attractive person I've ever seen. I'm like, where are your ugly people? And then I'm like, I'm the ugly people. I need to get out of here. Stop looking at me. Like, I've been in moments like that. So many hipsters, beautiful hipsters. We need to be in places where not everyone is like us. Where messages aren't just cheerleading. I've been there where I felt like I would be preaching cheerleading messages for a long time. <laughs> like, hey, you can do it. Let's go, right? Like, man, I'm not even getting... You're so mad at right now. She used to cheerlead and she's like, that's not how you do it. Come here, you can flip me real quick if you want. Try it out. <laughs> Uh, what are we talking about? <laughs> yeah, right. Where messages are about everything God can do for you rather than about the things that you can do for God. Church is not meant to be comfortable. Christianity is not meant to be comfortable. When you signed up for this, you signed up for one of the hardest lives that you possibly could have. Because if you want to be comfortable, you live like the world. And if you live like Jesus... The world looks at it like, that's weird. Sometimes we'll be like, that's weird, but I like it and I want to know more. Other times we'll be like, that's just weird and I hate you and you're wrong about everything. And the good news that the Bible gives you is that in those moments, you can count that as joy. That you are worth being a target for Satan. <laughs> Doesn't feel great, but Satan's got you on his radar. Because you're an annoyance to him. I think of Paul. Like there, was some, there were some people trying to cast out demons in the Bible. And the demons were like, who are you? I know Jesus. I know Paul. But who are you? Can you imagine being on Satan's radar like that? Where the demon's like, oh crap, it's Paul again. Right? Yay. <laughs> like that's a threat to Satan's kingdom. The Bible teaches us that we can smile when we don't fit in and that that's okay. Because in all of those things, smiling when you don't fit in, counting suffering as joy, celebrating that your faith is worth your pain, enjoying being a threat to Satan's kingdom, all those things is how you slay dragons. And if you pick up the sword 
and go try to run everyone around you into the ground and slander them and tear them apart, that's fighting like Satan. And when Christians do it, suddenly Satan's got a bunch of Christians on his side doing the things that he does. We can follow the way of the dragon or we can follow the way of the slain lamb whose blood is his own blood. As we're about to see as we continue through Revelation, it doesn't get easier, it gets more uncomfortable. The ways of the dragon have seeped into everything. It causes us to have to think about how to live life way too much. <laughs> to the purchases that I make at the store, knowing where they come from and what they might be benefiting on the other side. That's how far Revelation goes. But this Jesus movement would seep into everything so that dragons might be slain. We're going to sing a few songs and play some dragons (laughs) here in Jackson tonight. You can take on whatever posture you'd like as we do that. Just ask that you would start by standing with us. Those of you with um, sciatica, you can sit down. I said you could take whatever posture you'd like. You just had to stand for a second. <laughs> I do understand that. That's why I give up.